If you can think back to your days in high school history class, you can probably remember about learning about golden ages. These are periods in various civilizations of unmatched peace and prosperity, and they come perhaps once a millennia, but they're forever then known as the good old days. And most civilizations, after they reach their peak, they rarely attain the same glory again. The most famous golden age was probably that of ancient Greece, lasted from 500 to 400 B.C. The Greeks had finally defeated this massive Persian invasion, and a time of peace led to a real explosion in art, philosophy, literature, architecture, music, theater, and government, all of which still impact our culture today. For example, this is when the amazing Parthenon was built, parts of which still stand today. This is when the world's first university was built, the Academy, which was founded by Plato. And of course, Plato lived during this time, and him and his predecessor Socrates, their philosophy and thought still stands today among many. Also, if you like going to the theater, if you like watching a movie, you owe a lot to the Greek golden age. They invented the drama and the tragedy, especially on a stage. Shakespeare would have nothing if it weren't for the Greeks. The first great history book was written during this time. Music production reached a whole new level. Medical advances were made. Doctors today still recite the Hippocratic Oath when they're sworn into practicing medicine, so to speak. And this oath is derived from the father of Western medicine, Hippocrates, who also comes from this Greek golden age. Finally, the golden age of Greece saw the birth of democracy. It's when power to rule was placed in the hands of the people, a truly revolutionary concept at the time, and obviously still today. And as you can tell, much of ancient Greek culture has influenced our culture, and if it weren't for their golden age, who knows what the Western world would look like today. Now, speaking of the West, America has had its own golden age of sorts. At least economically speaking, historians cite the post-World War II era as being America's golden age. From 1945 through the 50s, America saw unprecedented economic expansion and nearly full employment. And it's a great contrast to the Great Depression, a mere five to ten years before this. Like the Greeks, our golden age came on the heels of a great war. And for us, we had all this industry devoted to war, and we switched it over to domestic use, and it led to just a massive boom. For example, explosive factories turned into fertilizer factories, and other machinery turned into tractor factories, and so there was a huge agriculture boom. Also, America, in the war, became the leading aircraft producer, so we had all these leftover tools and parts and factories. And so what do you know? America became the leading military, commercial air, airline producer. It was in the 50s that airlines taking a trip using a flight became a, a normal, commonplace thing. The nation was also connected by an interstate highway system. And all of this contributed to a real time of peace and prosperity in the country. And in the succeeding years, as re- recession started to hit, People found themselves longing back for for the good old days, the time of prosperity. And that's how it always goes, from culture to culture, whatever it is. People are always longing for the good old days. People are rarely satisfied with things as they are, and they want to go back to when times are better. Or they long for, for good times to come again in the future. They hope that they can once again return to their former glory. And people really need this hope, especially when they're suffering, they're going through trial or tribulation. The thing that keeps them going is the hope that glory will return, that times of peace and prosperity will return. And if you can understand all this, then you can understand how most Jews felt during the time of Christ. Is that During the time of Christ, the Jews were in a rough spot. They lived in the promised land, yes, but they didn't possess it. And even at that, they only had a few parcels of land, a far cry from what God gave them. And even at that, they weren't sovereign. The Jews were ruled and dominated by the Romans. The Romans oppressed them, persecuted them, imposed heavy taxes on them. The Romans also exposed the Jews to their pagan culture, which the Jews hated. It's not like they were slaves in Egypt, but in their mind, it wasn't that much better. Now, for sure, life in Israel in the first century A.D. was a far cry from Israel's glory days. Those days belonged to King David. That was Israel's golden age. 
David was the greatest king of Israel, the greatest figure in their history. It doesn't get better than the days of David to the Jews. During his reign, Israel was strong and unified. He expanded their borders. He led them to defeat their foes. It's a time of peace and prosperity. He kick-started public works. He laid the foundation for Jerusalem, being the holy city, the city of God. And all the while, David himself is a man after God's own heart. He pursued the Lord himself, and he led the people to pursue the Lord. And so in the mind of every Jew, it doesn't get better. It doesn't get better than the reign of David. That was a golden age. After David, in Israel's history, everything just went downhill and never got better. Solomon, yeah, Solomon was a good king. He also had a time of peace and prosperity. He expanded the kingdom, built a temple. Things weren't bad under Solomon, but despite his wisdom and his foolishness, he sowed the seeds for national disaster. And his sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they split the kingdom after his death, and the Golden Age was officially over. Israel continued in sin, idolatry, and apostasy, leading to judgment, destruction, even exile. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were both destroyed. Jerusalem, destroyed. The temple, destroyed. And all the people were scattered and exiled across the nations. Now slowly, some Jews came back to the promised land. That is never the same. They were no longer an independent nation. Yeah, they they tried rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, but the majesty, the splendor, the glory were gone. Israel had a short little period of sovereignty during this time. They were gaining some momentum, only then to be conquered yet again, this time by the Romans. And it was this, it was life under Rome that made them long for the good old days, the glory days of David. And you can probably understand now, living in the days of Christ, that the Jews, they had so much hope for those good old days, and it came to be that all this hope and longing started to revolve around one person, one figure, one deliverer, the Messiah. Their hopes were set on a Messiah to free them from their oppression, to deliver them from their enemies, and to restore to them that former glory. This Messiah would be a righteous king like David. In fact, the main title for the Messiah was Son of David because it would be a descendant of David who would accomplish all this. And these hopes were rooted in Scripture where God promised a Son of David who would set up an everlasting kingdom, a never-ending golden age. And all the Jews, they longed to see this age, the age of the Messiah, just this new golden age that would never end in Israel. Now, I mention all this because it's so important that you understand all this because it was in this highly nationalistic environment that Jesus came. Jesus, the Messiah, came. And understanding this, you might think that given the people's longing and, and desperation and desire for, for things to get better, that they would cling to Jesus as their deliverer. But that's not what happens. Something just crazy happens. They reject Jesus as their Messiah. Because he didn't look or act like the Messiah they were expecting. They were expecting a conquering king, a political leader, not a meek teacher, a spiritual guru. They, they weren't expecting that. Now sure, there were times when the people thought Jesus could be the Christ. Remember when he multiplied the bread and the fish? He fed the 5,000. The people were so amazed by that miracle and they were so worked up into this nationalistic frenzy that they tried to take Jesus right then and there by force and make him king. And you might think, oh, that's, that's great. The people are they're finally accepting Jesus as the king of the Jews. But it's not great. Jesus rejected them. He turned them down. He's like, no, I, I, I don't want to do that. He slipped away. Why? Because he didn't come to be that type of king. He didn't come to fight the Romans for them. He's not their political deliverer. Rather, he has far bigger and more important work to do, spiritual work to do. But even Christ's own 12 disciples, to a degree, missed him as the Messiah, the mission of the Messiah. They came to believe that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Therefore, they too expected the kingdom to come in any moment. That was part of their expectation. 
They thought Jesus would usher in this political, earthly kingdom, that he would sit on a throne and reign right then and there. They were looking for the Messiah to restore to Israel her former glory with them on top. But Jesus, he had to correct them all the time because his kingdom is not of this world. And his deliverance is not from slavery to Rome. It's from slavery to sin. Jesus was forced to confront the many misconceptions about the identity and the mission of the Messiah, both among his enemies and even his own disciples, all the time. He has to correct people. And probably the biggest correction he ever gave was to his own disciples. You might remember this back in Mark chapter 8. Right after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus proceeded to tell them what the Messiah really came to do. And it wasn't to conquer Rome. Messiah had a different mission than they expected. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. After Peter confesses him as Christ, it says Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. No Jew, no Jew was expecting this of the Messiah. Now, although this mission can be pieced together from the Old Testament, they didn't have eyes to see it. This was a bombshell that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people and then killed? It's like, are you kidding me? There's no way that could happen. And so it's no wonder that Peter, right after hearing this, remember what he does? He takes Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him. Because Jesus, there's no way you, the Messiah, are going to die and be rejected. That's not, we're not going to let that happen. It's not going to happen. But they still weren't getting it. That's what Jesus wanted. That was the will of God. For through his death and resurrection, he would set many captives free. Now, I know this has all been a long introduction. But the point is, you you need to be refreshed with all this background if you're going to understand the text we have for this morning. Because yet again, in our passage in Mark chapter 12, we find Jesus challenging people's misconceptions about the Messiah. Only this time, he does it in a big way, and he does it in a way he's not done before. Jesus has revealed to his disciples the truth of the Messiah's identity, and mission, namely that he must be rejected, he must die. But now he's revealing to even his opponents, even the crowds, the the nature of of his real identity, who he is, who the Messiah really is. See, the people believe that Messiah would be the son of David, but he's going to reveal, and that's true, he is the son of David, but he's not only the son of David. The Messiah also is the son of God. And not a single Jew was prepared to hear this. You really have to come to appreciate in your mind the fact that no Jew at the time had a concept for a dead Messiah or a divine Messiah. And especially not both put together. It really did blow their minds. But it was true. And you know, it really shouldn't have surprised them all that much because this was all actually revealed in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years before, God had told them this, but they didn't see it. But in the text we have today, we find Jesus himself, and all he does, all he does is point back to the Old Testament to reveal his true identity and who the Messiah really is, who he really is. It's our text for today, Mark 12. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Mark 12. I hope at the least you're intrigued to see what he's going to say and what it all means. And and let's begin by reading this text. It's short. It's only three verses today. But let's just get started now and read Mark 12, verses 35 through 37. And it reads as follows. Verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself says in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. 
So here we have Jesus. He's in the temple. He's teaching just a few days away from being crucified. The people haven't turned on him yet, but the leaders have. We've seen that. For, for a while, they've resolved to find a way to trap Jesus and to kill Jesus. Jesus predicted that he would be betrayed and killed by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. And that's precisely who we see assemble to try and take Jesus down in the temple. Over the past several weeks, we've watched as these groups have tried to trap Jesus in some statement, but it hasn't worked. And they've failed every time. In fact, these traps of theirs have backfired. It's like you're trying to set a mouse trap and you, you, you engage it and then you're putting the little cheese on the trigger plate and the snaps on your fingers. It's your own trap snaps on you. And that's what's happened to them time and time again. They try and trap Jesus in some statement, but he sends it back on them. And they're just humiliated every time. So much so that they've given up. The last verse that we looked at last week, verse 34, said that after all this, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. They're done with this, this tactic. It's not working. Now it's time for plan B. And do you know what their plan B is? Plan A was to, to try and trap Jesus in public, to discredit him in public. It didn't work. So plan B, let's just get Jesus in secret, arrest him, and kill him away from the crowd. This is what Matthew 26, verses 3 through 5 reveals. It says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. For now, though, Jesus, he's still in the temple. The crowd is still around him, as are the scribes and the Pharisees. And they just finished their last test on Jesus, their last attack. And now they're done. But he's not going to let them go. He's not going to let them go that easy, just walk away. It's kind of like, what's called the, the rope-a-dope technique in boxing. You ever heard of this? It's famously used by Muhammad Ali against George Foreman in their fight. But it's where you let your opponent hit you up against the ropes, and it looks like you're losing. They're, they're just pummeling you against the ropes. But really, you're just letting them tire themselves out. And meanwhile, you're, you're finding their weaknesses. And when the time is just right, then you just explode, and you, you counterattack, and you take them out. That's pretty much what Jesus is doing. I mean, he sat there and endured their attack after attack after attack. They didn't, lead, they didn't land any damaging blows, but he let them attack. But now, they're finished. He's not going to let them walk away. It's Christ's turn. And over the next several passages, we watch as he counterattacks. Righteously, he exposes their sin. He rebukes their hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. And with every truthful and condemning word, he just pummels them further and further into the ground. Now, this counterattack begins with our text today, which, compared to what comes later, it's pretty gentle. But Jesus first counterattacks them regarding all their misconceptions of the Messiah, their fatal misconceptions of who the Messiah would be. And being hypocrites, they're blind to Scripture. And so they have missed the Messiah. It's no wonder that they reject Jesus. It's not an excuse, though. It's on them. But Jesus makes clear who the Messiah really is. And in the process, he reveals a hugely significant truth as to the identity of the Messiah. This is a truth apart from which you can't be saved. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong. So you can't miss this. Mark 12, verses 35 through 37, that's the text. Let's spend some time making our way through these short verses, just trying to discern the point that Jesus is making. Now, I have to confess, back when I was a brand new Christian, I remember reading through this very passage and being totally confused. Just thinking to myself, what? what's he saying? Maybe when we read it earlier, you likewise were confused. What, what point is he trying to make here? I just couldn't quite piece it together. And you, likewise, might be confused, but by a little bit of background and some deeper study, you're going to see exactly what he means. It's a clear message and a profound revelation as to the identity of the Christ. So let's try and make this clear. It's beginning at verse 35. 
as we make our way through these verses. Again, look back at verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now Mark begins by refreshing our memory that Jesus, he's still in the temple, he's still teaching, the crowds are still around him, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they're still there. Now this conversation, actually there's something that happened before this that Matthew tells us about in his parallel version. That Jesus, before he said this, he first asked the scribes and the Pharisees a direct question. It's recorded in Matthew 22, verse 42. Jesus said to the scribes first, he said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So they just finished their last attack. Now Jesus, he's talking to them. And so he says to the scribes and the Pharisees, hey, so you know the Christ, whose son is he? And they say, of course, well, the son of David. And right after that, Jesus replies with our verse, verse 35, He says, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? You can see how he's no longer talking to the scribes. Now he's actually turned his attention to the crowd. And he says to the crowd, he just said to the scribes, the Christ, whose son is he? They say the son of David. And Jesus says, so the scribes, they say that the Christ is the son of David. How, How can they say that? Now he's turning to the crowd. And it's like he's picking apart the answer the scribes just gave. But it may not be readily apparent what he's getting at because the scribes, they gave the right answer. I mean, the Christ, he is going to be the son of David. Now, just as a quick reminder, the word Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's a title. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for the Messiah. And every Jew knew that the Messiah, the Christ, was to be a son of of David, a descendant of King David. In the Old Testament, God himself said it very clearly. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, verse 12, God said to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And many other Old Testament passages connect the dots between this son of David, the seed of David, and the Messiah, the servant of God. Now we can take this further, but the point is, it looks like the scribes, they mean they answered correctly. The Christ is to be the son of David. But it's clear from verse 35, Jesus, he's in some way challenging that answer. Now, for sure, Jesus likewise believes that the Christ is to be a son of David. He he believes that. But as we're going to see, he's challenging that the Christ is only the son of David. Because he's not. He's something more than the son of David as well. Now, every Jew believed otherwise. The Messiah, they believed would be a human descendant of David and nothing more. They believe the Messiah would not be greater than David. For to Jews, no son is ever greater than his father, his ancestors. And for sure, they had no concept of a divine Messiah. And Jews today still thoroughly reject the notion uh, of God taking on flesh and coming to be a savior. But here we have Jesus himself correcting them, challenging them, and exposing their interpretation of Scripture as lacking. The scribes, they all needed to learn that David's son is also David's Lord. And the Messiah, he's going to be the son of David, but he's also going to be the son of God. And let's keep reading. He says in verse 36, after this question, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now first, let me give you a quick side note. But do you see in this verse, do you see how Jesus himself is upholding the inspiration of Scripture? He's quoting Psalm 110, a very significant messianic prophetic psalm written by David. But Jesus himself here affirms it's also written by God. 
What David said in this psalm, Jesus said he was also saying by the Holy Spirit, by God's inspiration. It's just like what Peter says in 2 Peter 121 where he says that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And Jesus is saying the same thing. The Bible comes from God himself. It's inspired, meaning it's God-breathed. And that's the foundation for its inerrancy, its sufficiency, its authority. And that's what Jesus himself believed. And that's why he is appealing to Scripture to make his point. The question is now, okay, what, what point is he trying to make here by quoting this? Again, he's quoting Psalm 110. Here's what I want you to do. Keep your finger in Mark, and I want you to turn back to Psalm 110. Because this is something I want you to see for yourselves. With your own eyes in the text, Psalm 110. This is something that doesn't come out in the Greek of the New Testament. It only comes out in the Hebrew of the Old Testament. But even your English translation captures this. So I, I want you to see it. So go back to Psalm 110. And if you're there or when you get there, just look at verse 1. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Same verse that Jesus just quoted. David is writing this, says the superscription. And the subject of verse 1 is the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. And you see the first instance of the word Lord. Look down, you see it? You see how it's all in caps? Most English translations, that is indicating that the Hebrew word for Lord here is Yahweh. Yahweh is that self-disclosed covenant name of God. It's the name of God that he gave to the Jews. This is Yahweh. And this is distinct from the second instance of Lord in verse 1. You see it? The second word Lord, it's not in all caps, right? And that indicates in your English translation that we're dealing with the Hebrew word Adonai which is like your normal word for Lord. Lord, Master, Sovereign. Most often, though, this word Adonai, it's used as another title for Yahweh, God, because isn't God the, the Lord, the Sovereign, the Ruler of the universe? And so we often see these two words for Lord back-to-back, -back, both talking about God. Like, O Yahweh, our Adonai. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8.1. So we have these two words for Lord. One of them is God's, you could say, proper name, Yahweh. Another is a title that's often used for God, Adonai. But here's the thing. In Psalm 110, this second instance of Lord, Adonai, it's not referring to, to Yahweh. You see that? Instead, we have Yahweh himself addressing someone else as Lord, as Adonai. And again, a little tricky and using some new words, but try and follow along with that. Yahweh himself, this says, the Lord said to my Lord. So Yahweh is talking to someone else who's called Adonai, who's called Lord. Now the next question we have is, who's he talking to? Who is this Lord figure in verse 1, this Adonai figure? The answer, pretty clear, is it's the Messiah. And this was undisputed. Every Jew rightly understood and believed that this was a messianic psalm. Jesus believed it. He, even his opponents believed that this is talking about the Messiah. This Lord figure, he's distinct from David. He's distinct from Yahweh. He's presented as both a, a, a holy king and a high priest, something that no human king of Israel had ever achieved. And the Lord is inviting this other Lord up to God's own th throne room to sit at his right hand, which is the ultimate position of power and authority and rank, and God promises this Lord absolute victory over his enemies and looks forward to a time when he reigns as king and priest. So look at verse 2 of the psalm. He says, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We can take that further, but the point is the Jews, they all rightly understood that David is talking about in this psalm none other than the Messiah. The same one promised in the Davidic covenant to be a king forever over God's people. Here is also revealed he will be a priest forever over God's people. 
Okay, now, so far so good. That's actually not, not too complicated. And so far we've made the point in Psalm 110. It's a prophetic psalm that you have God, you have Yahweh, and he himself is anticipating the reign and the rule of the Messiah, the Lord, Adonai. But here's the kicker. And this is where all that background on David comes into play. That's why I spent all that time on it. But do you remember what the Jews believed about the Messiah? They believed that he would be a son of David and only a son of David. Meaning, the Messiah would be nothing more than a human descendant of David. And they believed the Messiah would not be greater than David. Because to Jews, no son is ever greater than his father, his ancestors. The son is always subordinate to the father. Even the title, son of David, implies that the Messiah is lesser than David. He's inferior to David. But here's the problem with that. If the Messiah is lesser than David, if he's merely the son of David, then how is it that David himself, in this psalm, refers to the Messiah as his Lord, his Adonai, his master? And that's what he's saying in verse 1. David is saying that Yahweh said to my Lord. David is calling this Messiah figure his Lord, his Adonai, his master. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's the same thing Jesus is saying. Back in our text, Mark 12, Jesus continues. In verse 37 he says, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? Try to make this clear, but the Jews, they glossed over this fact. That in this psalm, David actually called the Messiah his Lord. That's a big deal, actually. Because it's displaying that the Messiah... He's not, in fact, inferior to David. Rather, he's greater than David. Far greater. And we're talking about seated at the right hand of God greater than David. The Messiah, he's David's son. But the point he's making, he's not only David's son. He's also David's Lord. That's the first big point of, of this reference that Jesus gives from Psalm 110. It's in the text the Jews, they should have known. No excuse. I mean, it's right there in the text. But he gives this little exposition of Psalm 110. And the first big point, that the Messiah, the Christ, he is David's son. But he's also David's Lord. And from that stems a second big point that we can take further. Because you're meant to ask, how can that be? That's what they would have asked. And how can that be? There's no one greater than David. There's not going to be a human king greater than David. So... How can the Messiah be David or greater than David? Well, there's one way which the rest of the psalm and the Old Testament and the New Testament all make clear that the Messiah, the son of David, is also the son of God. He's also the son of God. The Messiah will be a man, but he won't be only a man. He will be the divine man. This is not foreign to the Old Testament. It's not like the New Testament writers just came along and made this up. This is all predicted hundreds of years before. Now, of course, Jesus himself here is appealing to Psalm 110 to to prove the point. The Messiah is son of David and son of God, a divine king. But Jesus could have appealed to many other Old Testament passages. For example, he could have quoted Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the passage which predicts the virgin birth of the Christ. Isaiah 7:14 God promises to and through Isaiah says therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean by the way? It means God with us. This child, this Messiah, he will be God with us. And that's confirmed again in Isaiah, just a few verses later in Isaiah chapter 9. Speaking of this same child, the Messiah figure, listen to Isaiah 9 verses 6 through 7. It continues and says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, 
to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I mean, did you catch that? I mean, isn't that utter blasphemy to call any human king, even a child, mighty God? Well, not if he is God himself in the flesh. And how many countless Old Testament references are there to the Messiah that speak of his eternal nature and eternal reign? It's not a human attribute. We just read one. Here's another from Ezekiel 37. It's speaking of that future kingdom when the Messiah reigns. Ezekiel 37, verse 24, where God says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will all walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Forever. And that's a big point because human kings, they're, they're not eternal. They don't reign forever. They, they reign for a little while and then they die. But this Messiah, he's eternal himself and his kingdom is eternal. And from here on, it's just overwhelming because we could turn to so many more Old Testament passages that affirm the same thing. And it's just, there's just a lot. And that goes for the New Testament as well, which connects the dots between the promised Messiah and Jesus. Jesus comes and, and he's, he's it. He's the Messiah. He's son of David. He's son of God. He's human. He's divine. It's true. Jesus was not the Messiah they were looking for. That's because they had it wrong. They, they were blind to their own scriptures. And that's why here, Jesus, what is he doing? He's only appealing to their own scriptures. But if only their eyes were opened and they had read the bigger picture of God's word, they would have understood. And they would have affirmed Jesus as Christ and Lord. Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36 Peter says to the crowd, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's Peter preaching, first sermon ever after Pentecost, to the same crowd of Jews who killed Jesus just a few weeks earlier and rejected him as Messiah. But Peter likewise quotes Psalm 110. And now with the evidence of the resurrection, he says, this is it. God has displayed, he has proven that this Jesus, whom you crucified, that he's Lord and he's Christ. He's Messiah, he's Savior, Son of David, Son of God. And that's the point. All right, we have a little three-verse passage this morning. It's, it's not long. And the point is simple. That here Christ is revealing by doing nothing more than appealing to Scripture the nature of his true identity. That he is Christ and Lord. He's son of, son of David and Son of God. And that's the takeaway. That's the takeaway even for you to, to go home with, to reflect on, to, to apprehend, to believe that Jesus He's David's son, and he's David's Lord. Jesus is Christ, and Jesus is Lord. And let's spend just a minute reflecting on that. First, Jesus, he is the Christ. He is. He is the Messiah. He is the son of David. Jesus actually was a physical descendant of David. Both the genealogies of Matthew 1 and Luke 3 confirm this. Of course, on his mother's side. Even Christ's opponents never disputed this. They had records. But they never, never disputed the fact that Jesus really came from the line of David. And furthermore, Jesus accepted for himself the messianic title, Son of David. From blind Bartimaeus to the crowds during his triumphal entry, whenever they cried out to him and, and appraised him as the Son of David, he accepted it. He never stopped them or rebuked them. But he accepted their praise because he was the Son of David. Also, Jesus is the Son of God. He is Lord. He is divine. All throughout Mark's Gospel, we've witnessed demons. And they, these divine or near-divine beings, these heavenly beings, they know who Jesus is. 
And so they cry out all the time when they see him, we know who you are, you're the Son of God. At the end of Mark's Gospel, we find finally a human, a Roman centurion, confessing truly this man was the Son of God. And Jesus himself took for himself the title Son of God and claimed to be God several times. And it was understood as such. John 5.18 says, For this reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Later it says the Jews answered him, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood what he was claiming. And this is ultimately why the Jews killed Jesus. They knew he claimed to be Christ and Lord. And they killed him for it. They understood he was claiming to be God in the flesh, a divine Messiah. In fact, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Do you remember the, the mock trial the Jews put Jesus through? And they tried to find all these accusations to, to accuse him and charge him with death, but they couldn't find anything. So finally, the high priest, he's so frustrated, he just asked Jesus a very straightforward question. And the way Jesus answers this question leads them to kill him. Do you remember the question and the answer? Mark 14, 61 through 64, I'll read it for you. It says, again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, Son of God? That's their question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. There's another reference to the right hand. Verse 63, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Very similar to John 19.7. Which, which is the Jews talking to Pilate. And the Jews answered Pilate. And they said, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. They understood. They understood exactly what Jesus was claiming. They just couldn't believe it. More so, really, they didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to bow the knee to Jesus because what did he do? He, he, he condemned them. He exposed their sin and hypocrisy. If Jesus is Lord, that means they're guilty, they're condemned. And instead of humbling themselves regarding this, they harden themselves and they refuse to believe because it would mean their own condemnation. But it was the truth. And although all of this was simply going according to God's prophetic plan, there's no surprises here, still, this is how the Jews came to kill their own Messiah. And now we have the inspired record of this given to us. And why do you think it's given to us? So that we would make the same mistake. That you would not, in your own heart, turn away and reject him as Christ and Lord. But that you would confess him as Christ and Lord. Isn't that the purpose of the gospel we're studying, Mark? The gospel of Mark? The very first verse, he said, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Christ the Son of God. That's what he's trying to display in the whole gospel and what you are left to, you are confronted with yourself. The question is, do you believe or not? Do you accept or reject? David's son was David's Lord. Jesus was David's Lord from all eternity, being the eternal Son of God. But Jesus also became David's son when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. He's both. And that really gets to the point for which why Jesus came, or rather for which Jesus came. The whole point of our, our text today, it's simple, it's short, it's actually not that hard when you, when you get down and study a little bit, but the point, we're, just, we're watching Jesus reveal his true identity. He's showcasing that he is the Christ and he is the Lord, and both must be believed if you are to be saved. 
Like Romans 10.9 says, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Both are necessary. But you have to ask, though, we also have to ask, saved from what? You know, why did God see fit to take on flesh and come in the first place? And the answer is to save his people from their sins. Let me read for you the old uh, Christmas story back from Matthew chapter 1. This is the angel talking to Joseph. Matthew 1.20 says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. It says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's why he came. That's why God came to be with us. Because in our sin, we were separated from him. He had to come to us, otherwise we would have no option but being forever separated from him. But he came humbly in Christ to save his people from their sins, to reconcile them to himself. God came in the flesh in Jesus by the Holy Spirit to redeem lost people, sinners like you and I. And now if you are to be redeemed and reconciled to God and forgiven of of all of your sin debt before him, then you must confess him as Christ and Lord. You must receive him and submit to him as your God and Savior. It's not enough to think fondly of Jesus. It's not enough. In fact, that was the the mistake the crowd made. Just to very quickly finish off our text in Mark 12, if you're still there, look at how verse 37 ends. It says, And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. I mean, they liked hearing Jesus put the scribes in their place. He was fun and fascinating to listen to. But here's what's missing from that verse. Nobody in the crowd that day bowed down to Jesus. Nobody did. They heard what he said with amusement, but they did not follow him as Christ and Lord. And look, it's not enough to hear. It is not enough just to hear You must believe. You must have faith. And true faith is always evidenced by acting on what you have heard. We know we're not saved by works, but if you really believe, you will live like you believe. It's not enough just to hear, just to sit in a church pew and hear some sermons. It doesn't make you a Christian. You must believe and you must act on those beliefs. This crowd did not. And so it's not surprising we find that the same crowd of Jews just two days later killing Jesus and chanting crucify him. We must realize there's no favorable saving response to Jesus short of bowing the knee and submitting your entire life to his lordship. Your entire life. Jesus is David's lord. Is he yours? Apart from him, you have no other Savior, no other payment for sin. So confess him as Lord now. Follow him. Give him your life in faith. Be saved. But don't just hear. Listen, believe, follow, and then obey. I'm going to leave you with the words of Matthew 7, Jesus himself, where he said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them may be compared to a man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell And great was its fall.
pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You are the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. And you made us. And yet here we are, denying You. We have all rebelled against You in our sin. We separated ourselves from You. And there's nothing we could have done about it. But this morning we've learned something we've, we've heard before, but we need to hear this all the time, how what you did about it, how you sent your son, God incarnate, to this planet, born of a, a virgin. How humble, how lowly can you get in humble circumstances being born, living a, a humble life, no special means, but then dying a special death. And we know what Jesus did on the cross, paying penalty for our sins that we might be forgiven. He displayed himself through his death, through his resurrection, to be the Savior, dying for our sins, and to be the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, rising from the dead. And now, Lord, you offer that those who confess this, who believe in their heart truly that you are both Lord and Christ, they will be saved. And that as we count on what you've done on the cross, purchasing our place in heaven, that we will find a place there by your grace. So I pray now that for myself and all of us that, that we do this. We bow the knee. We submit to you as Savior and as Lord. And as Lord that we obey, that we follow you. You're the God who has redeemed us and saved us. How can we not follow you now on your way? How can we not do what you say? You've given this ultimate price for us. And we so we give you our lives. Blessed be your name, Lord, for, for the sacrifice of, of the Son. We behold him this morning as both Son of David and Son of God. We pray that as he, he has saved us, that he guides us, we are empowered by the same Spirit, that we live in a manner honoring to you, pleasing to you, God who saved us. You are Lord Jesus. We confess, we believe, and we follow. In your name we pray. Amen.